When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You thought we'd forgotten you, didn't you? But we haven't. We've just been collecting our thoughts for the last week or so. It's also awards season, so welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket, looking back at the season of 2019, the amazing summer of 2019, and looking forward as well, because we've had the sort of first stages of the 100 draft for next year. There's a lot of talk about England's new coach and some of the people who've been dropped out of the England touring parties for the winter, like Johnny Bairstow. So quite a lot of stuff to discuss. Yeah, it's been lashing down, it seems, for the last week. No cricket. The cricket's over in England, but still lots to talk about and lots to look forward to. India putting South Africa to the sword in Visa Kapatnam. So yeah, cricket's have you been going there? on around the world. Have I have you... been to Visa Kapatnam, actually, yeah. I, I really liked it. I like the ground. I like the. I, I don't like think the, the South Africans are like no, it. No, they get absolutely pumped. I, there's one thing they do in Visa Kapatnam. There's a there's a lovely road across the, the front there, and they close it off in the morning so people can walk and run and cycle and exercise. Perfect for you then. Absolutely lovely. You yeah. love a bit of running and cycling, <laughs> don't you? Before the the day starts. Absolutely, it's the best way to best way to start a day. Anyway, that's Visa Kapatnam. Of course, Sri Lanka have been in Pakistan as well, which is you know significant because international cricket is great. Gradually, ever so gradually, returning to Pakistan. It was brave, actually, as well, because yeah. the Sri Lankans were the people who were targeted yeah. before. Yeah. So, you know, that's a, that's a great effort. But certainly, we're going to focus on on England and the English summer. And actually, I thought it'd be quite interesting because it's awards sort of period of the of the of the season or of the year. One of the awards nights was the Cricket Writers Club Awards, and obviously lots of people from the fourth estate there. So given this amazing summer, I thought I'd go round and ask one or two of them if they had a word. You know, these guys are supposed to be wordsmiths, <laughs> the likes of John Etheridge of the Sun, Dean Wilson of the Mirror, Derek Pringle, now writing for the Sports Paper, actually, and also Metro, so you can pick it up on the tube for free, and uh, some other uh, characters as well. So I thought I'd, I'd ask them all if they had one word that summed up the season, and here's a few of them. Splendifidus. Redonculous. Extraordinary. Stupendous. Epic. Interminable. <laughs> Spine tingling. Been delicious. Scarcely believable. Can I use two? Typical Aussie. <laughs> Always wanting a bit more than you can be allowed. You know? Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Beerist. 
I've left the, the most interesting one till last, in a way. Predictably, Pringle had the longest. But the last one there was Jonathan Yu uh, from The Independent. And his word, barest, is a reference, of course, to that great bit of commentary from Ian Smith, the highlight, really, of the summer. So I thought we'd just hear that bit of commentary again at the end of the World Cup final. And this is taken, by the way, from inside the videotape analysis truck. So all the cheering and and hysteria is from all the technicians working on the World Cup. Here it is, folks. This is the moment. It's Archer to Guptill. Two to win. Guptill's going to push for two. They've got to go. It's gone through. It's got to go to the keeper's end. Go on, go on. Yeah! You could say that those bike people should have been still doing their job, but <laughs> there was no point in doing any analysis at that point. The only analysis was was the uh, the bat of Martin Guptill a little bit short of the line, and we could all see that it was. So there was nothing else to say really except uh, to celebrate an, an incredible win. That was obviously the highlight of the summer, really, as far as uh, England fans are concerned. It, it, Headingley was a, was a close second. Oh gosh, it wasn't. It wasn't that far behind. Well, I, I mean, mean it was it, amazing. Win, winning the World Cup is is an incredible achievement. England have never done it, and they managed to do it this summer by the barest of margins, but an incredible margin, really, in a in a, in a strange way, an artificial margin. Although both sides knew what the the, the tiebreak was going into that super over, but that day at, at Headingley. Was was just astonishing, and I, I think it's, I think it's, in a way it's hard to separate the two. I think you know, winning the World Cup because it's such a landmark thing to do will we'll probably sort of just edge it. But to win a Test match from the position England were in, and to chase also the highest score they've ever chased in a Test match, the crowd noise on that day at Headingley on that afternoon, that Sunday afternoon was just astonishing, spine-tingling, really. And, and, and the, that sort of breathtaking way it unfolded with Stokes' sixes, the reverse sweep for six, and the drive for six to take them to then two of victory, then the near run-out, Nathan Lyon dropping the ball, the LBW that probably should have been out, and then that sort of glorious thrash through the offside that just released that amazing guttural roar well, from Stokes and from the Headingley crowd. I mean, that day at Lord's... Certainly had its rival at Headingley. Yeah, and, and actually, of course, the, there was also the drama of the Lord's Test as well with Archer against Smith. Yeah. Um, ben Stokes was interviewed last night, actually, at the PCA Awards, which is the sort of big night of uh, gongs at the end of the season uh, at the Roundhouse in the Camden area. And uh, he was asked, you know, has it sunk in yet? And he sort of said, well, no, not really. And he doesn't expect it will until he retires. Because no. it's just... It's almost a blur. He says he's watched it back a few times and he still gets nervous <laughs> whether Jason Royal will actually pick the ball up cleanly or not and throw it in to, to Josh Butler to run out Guptill. And, of course, Stokes was awarded the big trophy of the night, which is Player of the Year. And it's quite interesting. I was sat with Derek Pringle, actually, and we were looking at the trend of Players of the Year through the last 30 years or so. And there's an amazing period from about 1978 through to 86, where it was all fast bowlers. Richard Hadley, uh, Courtney Walsh, Malcolm Marshall, John Lever, I think he won it twice. Simon Richard, Hughes? No, I'm not, <laughs> didn't quite get there. Uh, but, but 
then there was a few batsmen in the sort of late 80s. It was Graham Hick, and it became 1989, 1990, especially. 1990 was the year of the bat yeah. when all these batsmen scored over 2,000 runs. And then it's actually it's gone back to, to being bowlers again for, for a few years. And now, more recently, we've had Marcus Truscothic, 2017, Joe Denley, 2018, and Ben Stokes. 2019, so the batsmen are, are back, dominating. There was a, a special award for Marcus Truscothic. I mean, it, 26 years he's been playing. Mm. And do you know, this is a great fact, and this is from Andrew Sampson, that he has the third highest first-class average, 42, I think, of someone who averaged only two in his first four games. And it's a, it's a bizarre stat. So his first four games, Truscothic averaged 2.6. Mm. And uh, there were two other characters from cricket history. One is Ravi Shastri, and the other is Eddie Painter, back, going a long way back. Those guys both averaged under five for their first four games, and they've averaged over 45 or over 44, I think mm. it is. So those are the two highest averages, Shastri and Painter, having averaged less than five for their first four games, and Truscothic is third. Yeah, well, what, what's the moral on that? D- don't necessarily... Write people off too exactly, early. Write people off too early. And yeah. actually, a- Andrew, this is in the uh, the current issue of The Cricketer, which comes out soon. We've just been reviewing the season. It's an absolute bumper bumper issue. Andrew Sampson's got a column in it, and he actually came up with this great stat about Truscothic, his, his favourite Truscothic innings, which isn't for England or Somerset, it's, it's for Somerset seconds. Somerset seconds, and I get this, in 1997, Somerset seconds were set 606 to win in a second 11 game. They failed by 11. They were 595 for seven. Truscothic run out 322. Wow. wow. God, I, I hadn't, I'd forgotten that. I had, I, yeah. I, I, Maybe that was what uh, Duncan Fletcher liked yeah. initially. Well, he did see him play, didn't he? Not against, in that match, uh, yeah. actually. But he saw him play against Glamorgan, and that's what sort of just stuck stuck in his mind. When he became England coach, he said, "Let's have a look at this lad." I was there, I was at Truscothic's debut at, at Old Trafford against the West Indies, where he made he made sixty odd. I think you know, when he played, when he started, it's worth remembering this. When he started, I don't I don't think it was clear that this was it was a you know a top quality player who was going to have a successful international career. I think it was you know jury out. Mm. It, it was there was by Very no means so. by no means certain that he was going to make a success of it because he he hadn't had didn't have that good a record in county cricket. No. But Duncan Fletcher had seen something and, and Marcus Well he scored a big hundred against Lamorgan. Yeah he? he did yeah Mar- Marcus himself said actually I, I, in a strange way he found Test cricket a little bit easier than County Cricket mm. because the pitches were better. And I remember seeing Truscothic around that era playing against Kent, actually, at Canterbury, and he was groping mm. at medium paces. Yeah. So he preferred the ball coming onto the yeah. bat. You know, he, he liked quick bowling yeah. rather than the sort of little medium paces, which you get a lot of now. Uh, talking of little medium paces, one other great stat from this season, and a survivor as well, Darren Stevens, the little medium pacer who converted from being a batsman about 10 years ago and has taken about 700 wickets since. He's the oldest player to score a double hundred and take a fifer in the same game since WG Grace when he was 46 in about 1890. And they've given him another year's contract at Kent. If you've been playing county cricket at 44, how effective would you be? How many wickets would you take him? But if you bowled a whole season, how many runs would you score at the age of 44? I'd certainly have the keeper standing up to the stumps. <laughs> He's um, standing in front of the stumps. You're right. I, funnily enough, 
age 44, you can still do it. It just doesn't come out very fast. And it seems that, in a way, the slower you bowl in county cricket, almost the better. I mean, look at Tim Murta, who's sort of 74 miles an hour. And again, had a good season. Not as good, in fact, as, as perhaps in previous years. In fact, I was talking to John Simpson last night at the, uh, the awards, Middlesex wicketkeeper. And he said, you know, for the first time, he started to stand up to Murta. And Murta doesn't like it. And actually... I remember when keepers started to stand up to me, and it's it's a terrible uh, sort of slash to your ego yeah. when you're you think of yourself as a fast bowler, and suddenly the keeper standing up to the stumps trying to get stumpings down the leg side. It, it is a little bit uh, humbling and, and a real reality check, yeah. I suppose. But actually, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you're tempted to bowl a banker, aren't you, just to get that keeper back? <laughs> it's like, you're yeah. almost bowling That's against right. the wicketkeeper than, yeah. than the batsman. A couple of other little stories from the PTA awards. Firstly. Jack Leach, uh, he he featured quite nicely. Uh, Stokes, you know, really credited him with his contribution in that in that great Headingley partnership. And uh, there was a, a photo on the night auctioned, which is a picture of Stokes, you know, celebrating that fantastic win. And who bought it? Jack Leach. How much did he pay for it? I don't. I think about seven grand. Mm. I I imagine he was probably helped along the way by perhaps some sponsors at, at the table he was on. But he went up, and um, that, the, so they had a little sort of embrace again on stage. The other one, the other sort of great award of the night, uh, someone very deserved, Simon Harmer, yeah, big star of, of Essex over the last two or three uh, years, or even more than that. And uh, it's funny actually, he's a big lad, you know, Simon Harmer. He's a spin bowler. But he's got, he's, a, he's built like a you know brick shit house. I mean, yeah. he's a big lad, and I shook hands with him, and his hand he virtually crushed my hand. He's got really big hands. Played four years ago for South Africa mm. in a Test match. There are just uh, little rumblings that he might be going to try and qualify for England. Yeah, he's got a few hoops to to go through for that to happen. Um, are, are you happy with that? Someone playing playing well, for South Africa and then coming over. Uh, I mean, not entirely, no. But we've, we've done it for so long now, haven't we? I mean, you know, Alan Lamb, Tony Gray. The players have come Robin over. They, they haven't played Test cricket for South Africa no. and then come and play Test cricket That's for true. England. They, they, you know, some have played junior level in South Africa. I don't know. Do you, do you draw a line somewhere? I mean, it's very tempting to have someone of that. The trouble is, people are quality. so mobile now. Yeah, that's true. It, 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 I think you do have to be quite flexible about mm. it. But maybe there should be five, six years elapsing yeah. before. They're allowed to play for another country. Yeah. Well, I mean, he'll, he'll still be... You know, well, he's 30 now. Exactly. He'll still be playing. If you, if you say a six-year qualification... So, another two yeah. years, yeah. he'll be 32. Yeah. That's six years since he played for South Africa. Yeah. So, it's not beyond the, the bounds of possibility. And, of course, he was part of that Essex title-winning side, which uh, happened a week ago. In, in what was it? a bizarre last day at, at Taunton. Uh, you know, I was sort of following it, and then I actually got home and t- to watch it, to see what was going on. He, they were sort of chasing about 63 in an hour, and then gave up with hardly any to win, with loads of wickets in hand, and still quite, some time left. It was almost as if they didn't want to rub Somerset's yes, noses in it. They didn't want right. to just say, right, we're going to beat you as well, because they, they, they call it off as a draw with about 10 minutes to go. They still had time to win the match, but I mean, obviously they'd achieved their their aim, which was to, to win the title. There was no need to necessarily go on and win the match. They just wanted to bat out that last hour after summer. I mean, it's incredible, isn't it? I don't think I ever remember a game where a team was forfeited in innings and set the opposition 60-odd to win. But, you know, must needs. They had a go at it. They showed you know, a bit of purpose, didn't they? So perhaps, you know, to have their 
noses rubbed in it by sort of Essex knocking them off nine wicket victory mm. would have been a, you know, a little bit too far. Yeah, mate, it symbolised the season of, of the season of respect, didn't it? Mm. Because you know the obviously the World Cup was played with New Zealand showing great magnanimity at the end of that. The Aussies and the English for most of the series yeah. were pretty well behaved. There was that lovely picture at the end of the series with all of the players, you know, having a beer together in the the oval dressing room, and then you have that kind of n- nice scene at the end of the. Match at Taunton with the shaking of hands and uh, Essex almost obediently not getting the, the other 15 or so runs they mm. need to win. Alistair Cook out there in the middle, inevitably. He yeah. still wants to play one more season. The Mr Perennial. Yeah. Sorry, I should say Sir Alistair Cook. And actually, while one West Country team failed, it's also worth noting that another West Country team succeeded... They did well in White Ball Cricket. I'm thinking of Gloucestershire, who managed to get into the first you division. You would have had, you well, had to get Gloucestershire. Well, I think, I think it's worth, it's worth noting. I've an impressive young coach in, in Richard Dawson, and we'll talk a bit more about where he might end up uh, a little bit later uh, when we look at the England coaching situation, the ramifications of uh, possibly Gary Kirsten getting a job. But if we're going to talk, you know, talk about Somerset's... Well, it was a good season for Somerset. They, they won the uh, one-day cup... Uh, and they they weren't far away from winning the championship, but for Gloucestershire to to get promotion, finish third. I mean, I looked and looked at lots of pre-season predictions. People say, oh, they'll finish sixth, seventh. Uh, they might do quite well in the T20, but actually they had a really good all-round season with uh, Ryan Higgins, mm. a magnificent season, nearly a thousand runs yeah. and fifty wickets yeah. as well. A fan- fantastic season. Who Middlesex let go? And they did. They did let him go, um, and and he's had a well. He's he's helped propel Gloucestershire into the first division. It won't be easy for them to stay there next year. I think they'll probably be favourites to to come down, but it is a significant achievement for them. Well, you've got the bragging rights because my Middlesex were yeah. third from bottom. They finished about in the second. second, didn't they, or something in the end? And, and Durham, obviously, yeah. stuck in the second division as well. So a little bit less uh, culpable in a way because they're still battling with the, the fact they got dot those points a couple of years ago. But still, my team's not covering themselves in glory this summer. Now, what about the hundred then? Yours, you were at the launch this morning of the of, of the sort of icon player allocation for the hundred. Mm. Yeah, and it's a, it's a sort of long winded process, I suppose, before we eventually get to playing this tournament, which doesn't start until next July. But that's the point. Is it? it actually feels like we've been looking ahead, preparing for this tournament. Oh, it's coming! It's coming for ages and ages and ages. You almost just want it to to start and see whether it's going to work. Mm. Of course you do. Uh, a lot of it, a lot of planning required, and the first step is naming the icon players for each team, which was done today. They were selected by the head coaches, who've already been announced, and they got together with one or two sort of assistants and the chief executives of different uh, the different city-based teams, and selected the, the the players that they wanted to be attached to their franchise, if you like. Uh, so one or two interesting ones there. Uh, ben Stokes got the call for the Northern Superchargers ahead of Joe Root. Which, and just we should be clear, the Northern Superchargers is the team based in Leeds. Yes. Uh, so so they're going to get Ben Stokes as their icon player, which means that Joe Root was now surplus to... He, he was one of the nominated icon players, but the Northern Superchargers decided on Stokes. So in the end, Root has ended up at Trent Rockets, the Trent Bridge-based team, which I suppose he went to school 
in the sixth form, not that far from there, didn't he? So uh, it may be not totally unfamiliar territory. Sheffield actually isn't far away from Nottingham anyway, yeah, he's, so not too bad. I noticed he's already said some very polite things about you know, the pitch at, at Trent Bridge and things like that, how much he's looking forward to it. I, you know, It's a great pitch there, all was done well, enjoyed playing cricket there. Uh, he, did, he did very well in a test match against India there once. I remember the huge partnership with, with Jimmy Anderson for the last, the last wicket. wicket. Yeah. Um, anyway, so everyone's being nice and positive. So, um, so the, yes, that's right. And uh, Johnny Bairstow is the other one that could have been picked up by the Superchargers, but he's gone to Welsh Fire now. So he's been sort of discarded out into the West Country. And then the others were people like Josh Butler. Uh, excuse the, me, that is not the West Country. The West, the West Country, the West Western Country part of the UK. The West Country ends at the Seven Bridge, and this is actually one of my issues about. The, there were there was some talk they were going to call the Welsh Fire the Western Fire, but that is, that's gone by the board now. It is going to be the Welsh Fire, and in a way, if, if you do live in the West Country, if you're you know Somerset and, and Gloucestershire, if you call the team the Western Fire, it's far more inclusive. But I'm I'm sorry, people in in Bristol will not support a team called the Welsh Fire, even though. They have, well, they've got Tom Banton in it, who won the Young Player of the Year award. I, I accept he's not a Gloucestershire player, but at least the Somerset fans might uh, attach themselves to the, the Welsh team with Tom Banton in it. There may be some other Somerset players as well. There may be some other Gloucestershire players. And w- relating to that, you, you said we were going to talk a little bit more about Richard Dawson. Well, the, the, the breaking story is that it's likely that, that Gary Kirsten will be the New England coach. And he's attached at the moment to Welsh Fire to be their coach for the 100. Well, he'll have to give that up. Mm. Uh, so, therefore, Richard Dawson, perfectly situated uh, down in the West Country, the official West Country, can <laughs> do, do a little hop over the, the seven and, and yeah. maybe coach that side. Yeah. And that would be a great opportunity for an English coach to show what they're made of. Well, we talked uh, last time, didn't we, on this podcast about the fact there were no English coaches in the 100. Or as head coach. As head coach, yeah. And, and so that does potentially give an opportunity to someone like Richard Dawson to be an English coach in the, yeah. in the 100. So Gary Kirsten then, England head coach, how does that sit with you? Oh, well, I like it. Uh, I first encountered Gary um, sort of just after I'd retired, but playing a bit of sort of Getty cricket, John Paul Getty cricket at Wormsley. Uh, he played a few visiting games uh, for you know South Africa. Actually, South Africa played a match there, in fact, the touring South Africans. And so I got to, to bowl to him. I mean, a very determined player, made a huge amount out of himself, mm. 21 test hundreds. Yeah. And yet someone who started as a bit of a no-hoper, really, he was an absolute battler. And I like the fact that uh, you know someone like that is, is a coach because they've experienced both ends of... The spectrum. They've had to really work hard to make the most of themselves, and I think that's what he gets the most stimul- stimulation out of uh, when, when, when he's working as a coach. He's obviously had incredible experience, coached India to World Cup winners in 2011, coached the South Africans to number one in the world mm. as a test-playing play, country, and he's just always been someone who has invested a lot of uh, time and, and energy in coaching. I remember meeting him in Pal many years ago when he'd set up his own coaching academy uh, in uh, in the sort of western province area just north of Cape Town and so he's he's an absolute career passionate coach one of the remarkable things about when he took the India job though is that he never coached a team mm. 
And Sonny Gavaskar was the one that suggested him, and they, they got him over for, a, for an interview. And in the, in the interview uh, process, he didn't do a presentation or anything like that. He said, right, I'm here. You asked me to come. You want me. Ask me questions. And, that, and that's how it all mm. started. They'd had the sort of... I mean, Greg Chappell was their coach before that, and I think there was a feeling that, I mean, although he you know, had a, you know, a strong skill set, he was quite sort of dict- dictatorial. Mm. And so they, when Gary Kirsten went in, he sort of obviously didn't, didn't go in in that way. And, and I, I mean, he, by his own admission, I've been reading Paddy Upton's book, The Barefoot Coach, who talks about uh, how he, he, along with Kirsten, you know, it sort of mentored Kirsten a bit. Well, they were part. They were part of the coaching setup, yeah. um, and and they were, they both felt sort of, you know, almost like what are we doing here? You know, we haven't got that much experience. But it's, it's fascinating reading about Kirsten's time as India's coach. I mean, for example, one of the things he did. You know, we talk about Trevor Bayliss uh, being sort of a hands-off coach. Well, one of the things that Kirsten did when he was India coach was he said practice is optional. It's up. It's up to you. Uh, you you decide. Or give it back to the players to decide. But. Raoul Dravid made the point that um, Gary Kirsten, you know, when he was at practice, he he never he did not stop until a player felt they'd finished everything they needed to do in terms of their preparation. So in a way, the players looked at the coach, saw how hard he was working, and realised that they had to work equally hard themselves. So I mean, this didn't always work, mind you, because there was a, a case when we talk about T Twenty, where he hasn't had a great success in T Twenty when he was in his coach uh, they came to the t20 in london and you know it was it, the players were sort of given ownership of their game what, what you know when they practiced and that and that sort of thing and the players took advantage of being in london you know and were out and you know, didn't practice as hard and india didn't do particularly well so you know things didn't always go well but it but it was about the players learning to take control of their own game rather than you know that dictatorial approach perhaps or far more prescribed approach of the, of the previous coach so um, I mean, as t- as time goes on, of course, as a coach, you you evolve and your ideas change, and so it would be interesting to see how he approaches the the England job, if if indeed he gets it. I think uh, it will be more emphasis on the Test match game, the red ball game, yeah. than the white ball game. His white ball record isn't as good, certainly not recently, where he he's worked with the IPL uh, franchise, the Royal Challengers Bangalore, and they haven't had a huge amount of success. He has had some success elsewhere but not particularly in India. He took Hobart Hurricanes to the Big Bash hmm. final in 2018. They were finished fourth. They lost in the final. And then, but slightly bizarrely, uh, he had a two-year contract. And then he, after one year, he asked to be taken out the second year of his contract for, for personal reasons. And the, the personal reason or reasons were not revealed at the time. Hmm. Uh, it, obviously, he's a really rounded individual, uh, he's just someone who you, you, he's, he talks a good game. I, I've listened to him, and he's, he's a quietly um, powerful guy. Actually, he's, when he talks, you really do listen. He, he's quite not spare with his words, but he's, he's not a, a loud, demonstrative type. He's quite thoughtful and quite sort of measured, but you know, careful with his words and knows the game so well. Mm. So I think he'd be a great choice. Lovely guy as well, and he's, he's got a brother brother who was a really good player, Peter Kirsten, mm. who I played against. He played for Derbyshire for years. Very talented family. Yeah. One of my favourite stories from Gary Kirsten's time as India coach was when they decided to, or when they allowed the captains to decide the level of fine for a player if they were late 
to the team bus. And so they, they allowed the, the captains to, de- to decide. And Anil Kumbli was a test captain, and he decided 10,000 rupee fine for any player who was late. They went to MS Dhoni, and he said, if a player was late, everyone was fined. Just think about the psychology of that. You don't want to let your teammates down, so you absolutely make sure that you're not late. Think of the the room for resentment if you are making your teammates late and therefore they have to incur a fine. Yeah, yeah. I wonder how quickly Ravi Jadeja cottoned on to that because he was notoriously always late, especially when when he was young, but maybe he's he's pulled his socks up. So, anyway, that's an interesting opportunity for, for England. And while we're talking about coaching... Um, I mean, coaching's become so complicated now, hasn't it? Because you've got all these different formats of the game, all these opportunities to play abroad and coach abroad as well as at home. Uh, so I, I picked up on, on one character who, of course, was a former England coach, Peter Moores, twice, uh, has had a, a difficult season. Well, we talked about Gloucestershire getting promotion into the first division. Of course, that, that, one of the teams they replace is Nottinghamshire. Yeah, who've had a, a difficult season. So uh, I thought of, of talking to him, because it's all very well to, to holler from the rooftops about a great summer, but there have been some losers as well. One of them are Notts. And I wanted to find out, firstly, why they've had such a poor season. We've lost a lot of players over the last three years, a lot of Red Bull players, you know, so six international Red Bull players have left us over the last three years, and that's a big hole. You start losing people of the quality of James Taylor, Brendan Taylor, Chris Reed, Michael Lung, Alex Hales, Harry Gurney. They're, they're big holes to fill, not just on the field, but off it as well. Um, so we, we've managed to sign some good young players, and they, they are good young players who have played well enough in this format, and we, we're bringing our own through, but we're in the classic transition in that format and it's tough I think you know I, I think it's tough for young players now because there's so many distractions from franchise cricket we ask them to, to score at you know a, a very high rate in 2020 and also be able to do this in in, in Red Bull and, and that sort of uh, challenge for those players is that they've got to you can't shortcut the process even though I think they want to sometimes you know you can't you can't shortcut learning to be skillful enough at the Red Bull is the most challenging you know test match cricket four day cricket is more challenging I think for a batter definitely than than white ball uh, because the ball moves the white ball doesn't move much and, you know to be able to play late cushion the ball pick up the right shots bat for a period of time um, and similar bowl with a, you know in the right area for a long period of time they're, they're tough challenges so the question is how we respond we've got some we've got a lot of young players now you know we've we've lost a lot of senior lads you know, in the winter over the next few months when we come back for next season, we're going to have to work really hard to come back and see improvement. If we do, that's how you get to make better players. And that's why I love coaching, really, because you see players grow up sometimes through the tougher bits than, than the good bits. In a way, that's a microcosm of the English test side. Have you got any like, simple uh, remedy for the game, the four-day game, the Red Bull game, to produce better test cricketers well the question is will will players will test match players end up being having to be older because I think one of the big things that's changed is that certainly when I started people looked to master probably one format be it one day or four, four day but you master one now now batters themselves expect to be able to master all three at the same time you know you know young fellas that have come in they expect to be, I think they expect to be good at 20 20 50 over and four day all at the same time with that I think sometimes um, 
maybe even coaches themselves sometimes expect players to, to be good. It doesn't, it doesn't really happen like that. So I think part of what you'll find is players becoming successful test might, might end up being older than they used to be, a little bit. Um, and I don't think we should be scared of playing players who've gone beyond the mid-20s, who've, who've mastered the red ball game and longer format of the game. Um, the rewards at the moment for white ball cricket against red ball are worrying, I think, in that we, we need our, our good young players to really want to, to master it, and that's going to take, it takes time. You know, it's not an easy thing. There's some good young players out there, um, but you've got, to, you've got to really work out where your strong areas are, how to let the ball in, how to do lots of different things that come, that come with it. Um, so it, it's, it's not simple. What's the healthiest thing that goes on at the moment is that I think all players still in the game still know that to become a good test match or four-day player is still a mark of your skill and your quality as a cricketer. And that, that, you know, that's the biggest thing I think cricket's got going for it, that, that the players themselves know the respect you get from other players if you become a good four-day test match batter or bowler. The feeling you get when you've mastered something that you know was difficult, scoring a hundred in a four-day game or a test match is very difficult, you know, is, is an unbelievable feeling. Moores didn't get one of the head coach's jobs for the hundred, partly I think because he's, you know, he's going to be quite tied up with, uh, with Nottinghamshire over the next year or two. So Stephen Fleming is looking after the Trent Rockets in the hundred. And um, Actually, we were just talking a little bit about uh, uh, today's launch of the 100 uh, in a kind of urban space in East London, in Brick Lane, trying to trend it all up. And there was Jason Roy there and there was uh, Chris Wokes. We were just talking about uh, approach and whether they're going to approach the game any differently uh, because it's 20 balls less per innings. um, Jason Roy thought, yeah, you probably have to go a bit harder in, in the first 20 balls or so. But, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll wait and see. What are the likely scores in a 100-ball competition? And he, he said, well, interestingly, in the 10-over bash, which has been going on in Dubai, the Tings have scored 140, 150 mm. in 10 overs. So it may be that the 100 balls, is the scores will be as high yeah. or even higher than a T20 game because batsmen have got less time... To uh, to dwell on anything, so they might just go for it. Just trying to hit the ball out of the park every single ball, roughly. I mean, not every single ball, but yeah, just yeah. I can I can I can see that. You can see how you have some some really high scores. So we'll take out <laughs> take out some of the slack time from from T Twenty in the way that England tried to take out some of the slack time from fifty over matches. Which is what they did, didn't they? They yeah. they, they went just they kept tra- going. They just they just kept going. Yeah. Mm. Um, it's not quite the, it's not quite light for light the same analogy, but it, it, there is a there is a sort of certain parallel there. I know that uh, a lot of people are, are negative about the hundred, but certainly within the game, excitement is is, is starting to build up. Uh, the next stage now that the sort of three or four iconic players from each team have been announced, women and men, uh, is to have the draft on the twentieth of October. That's going to be staged at Sky uh, in a studio, and basically each team has a pick in order. So the first pick uh, will be, I think it's Trent Rockets get the first pick in the first round of the draft, and then they'll get the last pick 
in the second round, and it goes sort of systematically through like that, so everybody gets a, an equal opportunity to bid for certain categories of player. So and there not... are six categories of player, down from, I think, 125,000, the top bracket, down to 60,000 for the lowest bracket. So, so it's, not a, it's not an auction. You're not, you're not trying to use a budget to... A bid, you know, pay a certain amount of money for a... it's all set. Yeah, they... they are there are salary bands and yeah. players within each band, and you can have a certain number of players from each band. Basically, three overseas players in total. Johnny Bester, we we mentioned him you know, off to the Welsh Fire, yeah, you know, based down in in Cardiff. Um, he's also lost his England place as well. His England Test match place. Uh, he was saying lots of positive things about you know playing for. The Welsh Fire. I just, wonder, <laughs> I, I just wonder whether he, whether he. I don't wonder what his state of mind is at the moment. Yeah. You've got to, you've mm. got to come, come, you know, come back strong again. He's, he has been dropped from the England Test team before. He's been, been dropped again. What, what, did, what did you make of the decision? We haven't, we haven't really had a chance to comment, comment on it I since think, the I think he probably does. Selection. Yeah, I mean, I think he probably does need a bit of time just to gather his thoughts. Decide what sort of player he's going to be. The two spearheads of England's batting in white ball cricket, Roy and Bairstow. Both dropped. Both fallen by the wayside yeah. in test cricket. Yeah. And in fact, I talked to Roy a little bit about the difference between playing the red ball and the white ball today. And he did say it, it is very difficult. It's very different. But he still sounds pretty determined, this is Jason Roy, to try and unravel how to play the red ball, but it's it's such a different technique, and that's kind of what Peter Moores was saying as well. Uh, absolutely, yeah, and he, he was talking about players. It's an interesting idea, actually, that it might well be that older players are selected to play Test match cricket, a bit, I mean, a bit like mm. Joe Denley. I mean, the way that was Ed Smith's theory there, you know, that he's had all that experience, he was good enough to play international cricket for England, you know, way back when, albeit uh, one-day international cricket, and he, he, feel he felt he had the game to... You know, because he'd organised himself, he'd worked it out. Mm. He had the game to play at Test match level. Uh, you know, some people are sceptical about that, but he, you know, he did get some runs in the Ashes, and he, he's kept his place for the England tour of New Zealand. It's clear, though, to me that Johnny Bairstow, if he is to come back into the England side, is going to come back as a batsman. It's not going to be batsman wicketkeeper anymore. He actually kept pretty well in the Ashes as well. It's, I don't know. It's a he hasn't been scoring runs. Is that how you read it? That, well, he's gonna, that they want they want him to come back as a batsman. It seems to me that's that's what they want. I think the general view and uh, the, the, you know wicketkeeping is such a technical thing, but the general view within the wicketkeeping brethren is that Butler is a slightly better keeper. I think he kind of he may not be absolutely categorically better now, but I think they can see the potential for him to be a better keeper than Bester. I think mainly because. He just moves a little bit sort of more fluidly. Bairstow is a, a bludgeoner of the ball with the bat and quite a sort of heavy-footed. I mean, he's obviously fast and, you know, fantastic hands and, you know, great athlete and everything. But just maybe he doesn't have that flow with the gloves and the hands and the movement. He's got one or two little technical things. There was a, a while ago he was taking a little step to the left before taking a catch to the right, which was inhibiting his reach a bit. He's tried to correct that, but, you know, there are just one or two little sort of footworky technical things which still need a bit of work for him and just feel somehow that, that Butler is just a more natural gloveman. So, Bester will only play as a batsman in future, do you think? I mean, it's, it's a pressure on him, but, uh, yes, I, I think perhaps 
that would be the way to go. Yeah, and that's that's my feeling. I, I I get the sense that's what they want. And, and actually, they look at his average in in Championship cricket. You know, we've, England have picked quite a lot of players, and they've been averaging sort of in the thirties. They've sort of had to give them the go because, like, you think, well, who else is there? Besto is very solidly in the forties in the, in the Championship. You know, they, they look at him and say, well, he has got you know the one of the highest averages mm. of of any of the players playing in the in the county championship who's played in the championship over the last few years what you know why can we not play him as a batsman why is he not want to be a batsman almost take ownership of, of being a, a test match batsman and, and yeah we've seen him play superbly in, in test match cricket you feel he he is capable though because it does bring its very peculiar pressure when you're just playing as a batsman runs as a batsman wicketkeeper mind you he's been playing as a batsman wicketkeeper and it, you know he's, he's not scored many runs for, for quite a long time so so there you go I mean that's why he's been left out Nice little cartoon in in the cricketer last month. Uh, just to finish, uh, was by Newman, uh, the, the man who also draws uh, lovely cartoons in the Times, and it was a picture of two sheep, uh, and it said, Careful, where, "Where are we going with this one?" It, well, it just said, <laughs> "Try counting Steve Smith's runs," uh, and I think we, maybe that is the legacy of this season. We haven't mentioned him up to now. Of course, he didn't get any awards to last night because he's not an English player. But he he was uh, the, the man of the summer, really, uh, in, in terms of certainly the Test Series anyway. And, um, well, that is a good way of going to sleep, isn't it? Yeah. Counting Steve Smith's runs. <laughs> what, watching him bat, you mean? I'm just counting, counting his runs. And well, I, I'm going to miss that, actually, because one of the things I, I, I love about Test cricket is there's always a character to to watch uh, unfold his play during a series. So it might be Anderson won the series. Warren was always a godsend because of the way he would uh, unravel a batsman during a, a series and to find different ways of getting him out. Anderson's been the same uh, during a test series. And Smith, the way his method evolved, the way all the bowlers tried to find different plans to get him out, was in a way that the, the subplot of the series, or in fact the, the main story of the series... Yeah. It was the SS summer, wasn't it, really? Stokes and Smith. Um, dramatic, we'll, we'll never forget it. Well, on we go. You talk about Smith. Um, you know, England have got to find a way of getting him out in, in two years' time. They, they, need to, have a, they need a Douglas Jardine, don't they, to come up with some sort of plan to get him out in a few years' time. Body line. Well, they've got the bowler to do it. Mm. Anyway, well, our plan uh, is to do a podcast every ten days or so from now on. It's a slightly slower part of the cricket year... But there's still always plenty to talk about. And it won't be long before England are off to New Zealand for five T20 matches and, and two test matches. And it will crank up again and then the whole test tour to South Africa and then Sri Lanka and then we'll be back to the English summer. We'll, we'll, we'll be playing cricket. It's a grey day today, but we'll be playing cricket before long. Please give us a review of this podcast. It always helps. And if you like this podcast and you know someone who you think would also like it, tell them about it. Thanks very much for listening. Sports Social Podcast Network.